is going on? Happy Monday. Welcome to another week of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, I have a feeling you're going to want that number because from what I've seen over the weekend, what I've heard this morning on Halford and Bruff on the postgame show on the weekend, Canucks fans and our listeners have lots and lots and lots to say about a team transfer that is now 0-2 on the season with two blown multi-goal leads the latest Saturday in Philadelphia. The game on Saturday was really interesting because the Canucks were at their worst while building a lead, right? I thought that first period was dreadful, right? Really concerning for me. And my mileage probably varies a little bit from yours or from anyone listening, but I thought the Canucks were actually really good over the latter 40 minutes. I was watching that second and third period thinking to myself, it's just a matter of time before this Canucks team blows the door off this absolutely limited opponent. And yet some of what we were talking about in the lead up to that contest sort of came to bear. Like, when do you not want to face Wade mm. Allison and a John Tortorella <laughs> team early in the season? The legendary Cates brothers. <laughs> Which was the better Cates? I was asking myself that repeatedly. Jackson? I, don't, I forget the other Jackson one's name, Cates. to be honest. Noah? Is it Noah? Um, I don't know. It was Jackson Cates, which reminds me anyways of the Bruce Springsteen song, Jackson Cage. But anyways, that's a story for another day. The absolute guys quotient of the Philadelphia Flyers was through the roof, right? Just so many guys who playing their first NHL game would come out, you know, fail to handle a pass, send another pass that like absolutely was jumping all over the ice and then take a penalty. And it's just like, how is this Canucks team losing to this group of players? They got outworked for 20 minutes and yet came out of that period with everyone being like, strong first period. And I was like, oh man, this is dreadful. This team is nowhere close to full value for this 2-0 lead. And then D'Angelo kind of gets a lucky one. Let's be, let's be honest, right? The penalty kill for all that we can look at it and say, hey, they've allowed four goals on nine opportunities, right? The D'Angelo goal is just a fluke. Absolute lucky. It, it's, yeah, it's not as if you look at that and say, oh, what a breakdown by the penalty. No, kill, it, right? was a, it was a almost 100-footer from the point. Not even a particularly hard shot. Went through a mass of bodies. Those happen over the course of the year. One, one of their other shorties is the McDavid empty netter. So the Canucks take a penalty late. And so they're charged for a shorty when... Evander Kane back passes to McDavid to complete his hat trick. Um, so all of a sudden it looks like, oh, JT Miller, he's been on the ice for four four shorthanded goals. It's like he's been on the ice for two, and they were both against the Edmonton Oilers. Then he's been on the ice for a floater from the point and a McDavid empty netter. Like, stop. Stop it. You know, I know the numbers are ugly, but the PK was not bad or a problem in that game. I will say this. The penalty kill is probably not necessarily going forward, but if you're just like listing all of the things that have frustrated you the most, the penalty kill is very low on the list for, as, me, as for it two should games. Because we just haven't seen that much of it. Which is ironic because the power play would be at the top of the list, and yet what am I really confident in is like just a blip and not the start of a trend. It's the Canucks power play struggling mightily, right? What am I worried about could be the start of a trend? It's the Canucks PK not being particularly good again, right? Especially with all the defensive personnel they're now down, face you know going into a pretty crucial week, right? You're playing 
a three and four here, which is going to complete a four and six. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a tough stretch of games for Vancouver with some tough opponents. So, um, you know, to be doing that with Luke Shen on your top pair, Kyle Burrows in your top four, although smart guy told me this weekend they, they wondered if Kyle Burrows might be an upgrade in Vancouver's top four. Right, like Kyle, realistically with Kyle yeah. Burrows looked really good. He was the bright spot on Saturday. He played he's well. Been he's so reliable. He so skates steady. well. Like I'm, I'm more confident with the puck on his stick than some of the other options. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the the point that the point that a smart guy was making to me was: Are the Canucks better with Tucker Pullman playing top four minutes or with Kyle Burrows? And for them, it's Kyle Burrows. And you know, I found I found that difficult to quibble with, even if the organization has always seen and rated Tucker Pullman. Uh, at a level beyond that which I do. Uh, nice to see Tucker Pullman skating, by the way, in yeah. the optional today. Um, very relieved uh, to see that. You never want to see neurological issues, um, you know, reoccur. Uh, hopefully, based on the fact that he's skating again, that hasn't happened in this instance. I talked to him about it in September, and he really, like, didn't even want to mm-hmm. go there, didn't want to revisit it. Um, you know, when you see someone doing that math in their head, you know, when you when you can just not that I ha- not that he's opened up to me about it, not that I can you know tell you anything about what it's like to experience that, but just sort of watching him choose his words on it is enough for me to know. Like, I'm I'm deeply grateful if he has avoided that type of injury. Um, and yeah, you know, this time around, the fact that he was back on the ice today, really, really good news <clears throat> from that perspective. So, so to get back to Saturday, the Canucks start to play really well, in my opinion, really well. Like I thought they were deeply unfortunate to leave the second period without a goal or two, considering the caliber of chances they were generating. Obviously the Kuzmenko one where, where he just couldn't lift it. He was just in a little too deep stands out. But I mean, that was far from the only chance in that period. I thought the Pedersen line for another game, um, you know, was doing disruptive havoc causing stuff getting chances generating a fair bit and then in the third period they kept missing the net they kept missing the net but like that first 10 minutes of that third period I was I was just waiting I, I thought the Canucks were going to win by uh, one or two like I checked uh, our friends at play now and again <laughs> I don't bet on hockey but I like to track these things because I'm interested and uh the, the, you know they were plus 300 on, on the puck line to win like minus one and a half and I was like I feel like if I if I was a hockey gambler, I'd be all over that. And I would have lost um, because bouncing puck, weird one, right? Pass Demko, credit Konechny, man on the spot, and boom, the Canucks lose a game to a Philadelphia Flyers team. And the worst thing you could say about it is that their effort was inconsistent. It was kind of the mirror image of the Edmonton Oilers game in that the third period for me in that Oilers game was really concerning. The first period in that Flyers game was really concerning. For 40 minutes in both of Vancouver's games to this point, I've liked what I've seen way more than I expected to. But there have been 20 minutes, and and by the way, their goal differential in those in those 20 minutes in each game, like if you combine them in those 40 minutes, those concerning 40 minutes, mm-hmm. it's only 3-2, right? Like those 20 minutes, though, when they were building the lead in Philly and when they were getting sunned, patted gently on the head, uh, and thanked for coming, and, and God bless your heart by the Edmonton Oilers in the third period on, on opening night, like those periods stand out to me as, you know, what is going on? Is it a limitation in terms of this club's hockey IQ? Is it fatigue in terms of generating and sustaining the type of pressure and the type of game that Boudreaux needs them to play if they're going to have any success? Um, you know, I, I don't have the answer for you, but I do want to see something closer to, you know, the, the, the old 60-minute effort line is sort of absurd. Like there's there's ebbs and flows in a game. But I at least want to see the team not have 
one absolute egg of a period. And it's just that when I'm calling it an egg of a period, I'm not talking about the ones necessarily where they blew the lead, right? I'm talking about the third period where they got defeated in Edmonton. I'm talking about the first period in Philadelphia where, paradoxically, they built a lead but looked pretty soundly outworked yeah. by a far inferior. I mean, group. at a certain point, you got to be able to limit your bad stretches to like five minutes, even 10 minutes rather yeah, than a whole shifts. period where yeah, you're looking 100%. really, really bad. Now, I think where you and I differ, I didn't even think they were that good in the second half of that game on Philly. They had the big Kuzmeko chance, which stands out, right? And obviously, if he buries that, totally different game. All of that, I understand that. But in the third period, they were the better team, but it wasn't overwhelmingly so, right? And I think you wanted to see them, you would have liked to see them really flex the talent advantage they have over Philadelphia. Philadelphia, uh, they won the game, credit to them, but they did not look particularly uh, exciting or excellent doing so. And, you know, I think I come back to one of the things I said on Friday, right? Which was, okay, this is the Philly game is a, a golden opportunity to build that case to show that we should take this team seriously. And I think. For me and for a lot of fans, they kind of did the opposite, right? You're fortunate to be up to nothing. Okay, hey, guys, we didn't play well in that first period. We're better than this team. Let's go out and show it. Yeah, they were the better team over the final 40 minutes, but again, not to the degree to overcome a couple of bad breaks, right? And that's what was the frustrating thing for me was. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't the, oh, man, they are they are absolutely, you know, full on pressure, Every all four lines getting in on it. It was, okay, that was a nice shift. A couple of you know, not much happening. Okay, there was another nice shift. It never felt like they were like doing to Philly what Edmonton did to the Canucks, for well, instance. I always think you have to be careful in hockey because you know to rip off Lasorda, as I've often said on on these airwaves. Right, I, I feel like in hockey there are about twelve to fifteen games that every team loses, no matter what, no matter how well they play, and there are twelve to fifteen games that every team wins, no matter how poorly they play. Right. Uh, you can tell when it's those games because you're allowed you're you're scoring on rush wrist shots unscreened, um, and then and then there's 50 games that sort of allow teams to show their metal. Uh, there's a thing called the halo effect, right, where you read too much into a first impression that someone makes on mm -hmm. you and and weight that too heavily in judging their character or even like a brand's reputation or how much trust you sort of proportion to to a group. The Canucks obviously have not built trust or goodwill to overcome this type of start. But, you know, I legitimately look at that Philly game and think other than the fact that they thought that the game started at 5 p.m. as opposed to 4 p.m., clearly, right? Other than the fact that they need to set their watches and arrive on time, I, th I thought the last two periods of that game would make a strong case for this to be included in just one of those, just one of those games. But when it happens in the second game of the year – it's so hollow when it happens in the second game of the year after the Canucks frittered away a three nothing yep. lead on opening night. It feels even worse, and yet I really look at that Philadelphia game and think any talk of crisis or early season crisis or what have you. Like I, I do think we need to tamp it down. I, I've been more often than not surprised and impressed by how much better Vancouver has looked five on five than I thought, and considering that their issues five on five, right? Like what's dragging the team five on five are things like Quinn Hughes and JT Miller. That to me is like a positive. Like if you look like this at five on five and it's partly because Niels Oman was your primary matchup against Kevin Hayes and it worked, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not worried about that. Like the guys I'm probably least worried about on this team, to be totally honest with you, are, are Quinn Hughes, right? Like Quinn Hughes... At sub 40% shot attempt differential, sub 40% expected goals margin in his first 20 minutes of five on five. Guess what? That's not going to last. 
so, you know, I just look at this team's five-on-five play, and I think, man, I really think there's a fair bit going right for them, particularly at the bottom end of the lineup. The things that are going wrong for them, I, I the power play, Quinn Hughes, JT Miller, are, are things that I expect to be pretty good here. Um, you know, I'm not I, – I, I think the crisis mode talk's a little overblown at this point. I get why we're having it. I get why we're there. I just think this team's done some good things in addition to the bad things. If they can sustain a decent effort, if they can work the way they did the last 40 minutes in Philadelphia, they're going to be fine. Just like they're going to be fine if they can do what they did in the first 40 minutes of Edmonton and replicate that on a regular basis, but for 55 minutes instead of just 40. I think the crisis mode is too soon as well. However, and again, I said this on Friday, right? You're... You see them blow that three-goal lead against Edmonton, and you can say, okay, it's McDavid. You get an unlucky break with the missed call on Hughes. They did a lot of other things really well. But in the back of your head, you're not just looking at that one performance. You're thinking about everything else that has happened with this team, with this franchise over the last number of years, right? And as you said, you know, even taking it out of a sports context, rebuilding trust is hard. There's obviously a critical lack of, of trust, of confidence from fans in this team and I think when you see performances like that and obviously we differ a little bit about ultimately how well they played in the end but when you see performances like that on Saturday it just makes it so much more difficult to rebuild that trust and look I'm not saying the season's over yada 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 whatever we could be having a completely different conversation in on Wednesday right they've got two games in the next two days we could be having having a completely different conversation but I also think it's not the people who are losing it a little bit right It's not even fair to say that they're only overreacting to two games, right? You're not just reacting to two games. You're reacting to years of frustration, years of unanswered questions about this, right? I do think that's important to keep in mind. Again, it could absolutely turn around. There's no question about that. But when it just feels like a continuation of previous problems coming up over and over and over again, I think that's ultimately the thing that makes so many fans uh, so frustrated, and I, I did want to throw this out there, right? Well, I think people, the temperature's cooled a little bit from uh, Saturday afternoon <laughs> when JT Miller coughed the puck up to Konechny and, and the Flyers scored the winning goal, but uh, 650-650, hit us up. What's been the most frustrating thing for you so far about the Canucks 0-2 start? Again, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line, and look, I mean, I, I know we're going to get a lot of texts about him. I just mentioned him. We should talk about, I want to talk about JT Miller and Uh, the trio he's been playing with, the first line, which looks like it's going to be broken up here along with Pearson and Besser. But I want to start with Miller specifically. So, you know, we've all heard it. We heard his reaction to it. He was on, he's been on for all eight goals against them. That's tough. I also look at that. I'm not going to get too worked up about that, right? There's a lot of luck. As you said, there's an empty net goal in there. There's kind of a floater from a point. That's not the point of, you know, that's not the reason I think that JT Miller has been poor to start the season. Let's put it that way. No, it's the inability. But I do of that think line. he's been bad. Yeah, he <laughs> has. It's the inability of that line, and it's not just Miller. It's also Pearson. It's also yep. Besser. Not a surprise to see that line get mixed up, right? It's been their inability to exit the zone with any sense of control and create any meaningful sustained offensive pressure, particularly beneath the hash marks, the way that that line did so regularly for this team last season, right? Just winning that territorial battle, regardless of whether or not they'd scored. We've seen none of that because they've been bogged down in their own end of the rink. Um, You know, if it was one thing when it happened against McDavid, oh, they spent a bunch of time chasing around Connor McDavid. When Miller's not even the primary match for the Flyers' top line and it happens again against Philadelphia, I mean, look, you got to credit Ivan Provorov, who I thought had a really good game. 
Um, but only only to some extent. You have to be able to generate more than that line did. And the problems are starting 150 feet from their own end. Like that li- that line is not getting out of their zone with any sense of reliability. Uh, the Pedersen is, right? Like what's the difference between these lines, the Canucks forward lines as we've seen them so far? Pod Colson, right, has found a way to key the Canucks through yep. the neutral zone. Uh, Pedersen has found a way to key the Canucks through the neutral zone. Miller, Pearson, Besser, no one has found a way to do that. And unfortunately, with the way that this team is built, particularly with the absences that they're dealing with, there's not a lot of help if the forwards can't kind of do it themselves. And we've seen that again and again in the Canucks' first two games, too. The limitations of this defense score, and it's not the limitations of this Canucks uh, defense score because, look, they've coughed up these leads. It's when the game gets grimy, when they need a plan B, who's connecting play? Who's connecting play? Usually it's the forwards doing an awful lot of the yeoman's work to break out establish possession and attack with very little support from the blue liners. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the new lines and stuff later when we look more at the matchup tonight against Washington, which is a 4 p.m. puck drop here on the West Coast. Of course, we'll have it here on 650. But yeah, I mean, look, Miller, you know, we've seen the turnovers, the lack of offense. He hasn't been able to key the power play yet. You know, take these numbers with a grain of salt. They're only through two games. He's only played about 21 minutes of five on five. Uh, Natural stat trick has him down for Two scoring chances when he's been on the ice. Not even him personally. When the when JT Miller has been on the ice uh, at five on five, the Canucks have had all of two scoring chances in almost 21 minutes. That is far and away the worst rate of any Canucks forward through two games. Again, take that with a grain of salt, but I think it also matches what we're seeing. And, you know, as you said, Patterson and that line have been able to get through the neutral zone uh, with control of the puck. Pod Colson has been able to do that with the Horvat line. I would also note that when the Horvat line has had to play dump and chase, Connor Garland and Vasily Pod Colson have been really good at it, right? And that's something we haven't seen from uh, the the Besser, Miller, Pearson line. I thought all, I think all three of those guys have looked pretty slow, and they just haven't been able to get any time on the puck. They haven't been able, like, it, it falls on Besser and Pearson as well because they haven't been, found a way to be uh, impactful yet either. No, they've been absolute nothing through the neutral zone right like and as a result haven't been able to get into the offensive end where we know their skill sets complement one another right like we know if you can get the puck along the wall or down low with those three on the ice they can do some interesting stuff right as as tanner pearson memorably put it put it to me during training camp they play stupid smart hockey and it works Mm -hmm. and it's a good combo it's a good trio like we can't again avoiding the halo effect you can't take these two games and be like that line's too slow to play together they played a thousand or 500 minutes together and played great last year like there's no reason to to give precedence to what we've seen most recently and throw out a sample that's you know 15 times larger and far more informative in in terms of telling us uh, what we need to know about whether this line works it does it just hasn't to this point um it will it if they get a longer shot. I, I'm sure it will start, but this team probably can't afford to just be like ah, passive. These things will sort themselves yeah. out. Like clearly, this is a group that needs a shot in the arm, particularly because of their failure to arrive on time and outwork the Flyers from puck drop. Right in some ways, despite the two goals that they got, sort of a a, a lucky. I mean, it was a lovely Kyle Burrows shot, but sort of a lucky uh, goal at the end of the day. That's the unscreened Kyle yeah. Burrows sixty footer. That, that you have to like, sort of you're not gonna get that every week no you can't you can't waste those and then and then i mean i loved the pod Colson 
Dipsy Doodle to set up um, Garland. I loved the Luke Shen play in the neutral zone to set that play up, and I thought Garland's finish was absolutely lethal. Just took his time, raised that one foot. No no chance for Carter Hart on that one, unlike with the Kyle Burroughs one, which he probably should have had. Uh, with, you know, with where the Canucks are going into tonight now, right? Because here's where your issues compound. Now they're down another defenseman, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're, they've changed up their lines, and they've changed up their lines in a way that concerns me, and we'll get into that probably in the third segment, so at 1 o'clock. Um, maybe they've overreacted in some ways to some of what they've seen. Certainly they've split up the one line that's carrying them five-on-five and has been really impressive. Um, That's sort of the risk you get into. Do you overreact? Do you underreact? Do you stay the course? Um, What exactly do you do to address, you know, two losses, particularly when one of them comes in a game that you frittered away the lead in the two periods that you played the best? Right, it's it's a tough set of decisions that Bruce Boudreaux is facing as he returns to a Washington Capitals team that first gave him his NHL shot, uh, seeking his 600th win for the fourth time. Been unable to get it in three previous occasions. Fourth chance at 600 wins for Boudreaux tonight in his familiar mm-hmm. stomping grounds. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's text in there uh, still on pace for the Canucks to do what Durant, do what Durant said, uh, most like or least likely path to the most likely outcome. And somebody te- else texted in, are you still buying uh, your premonition from Friday? I did have to laugh because when they were playing really poorly and up to nothing, it was like, your your adage was coming true, but just in the reverse of how you you know what I mean. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, they'll win this game by playing really poorly, <laughs> the most likely outcome, but in a stupid, stupid way. I mean, that, that is, didn't transpire, that, but yeah, that that that's maybe what happens tonight, right? Like that's yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Put it put it this way: Do I think the Canucks are going to go over on this road trip, or do I think they're going to finish something like two two and one, two one and two, three and two? Like I've that was always the grounding of my premonition, right? I had a premonition that they would lose in Philly, and I always think at the end of the day, a larger sample is going to make sense, just in the in the dumbest possible way, and the the silliest way that I could find for the Canucks to get to four to six points was to lose to Philadelphia, have this market in an absolute lather come which Monday, was, which it certainly was, deservedly so. And then and then storm back and do the you know yep. Boudreaux vibes thing, like we're a resilient group going into the home I, would i be surprised by that not a bit not even a little bit uh ball hockey bureau on twitter says when the sky is falling drance is mr Brightside." <laughs> so here you go this always is, always zig when everyone else this zags. is your time to no, shine uh, it's, it's two days in you <laughs> yeah, know yeah, yeah, it's yeah. two games in and also you lose four points you leave four points on the table not a big deal right where it's going to become something that i start to react before christmas like last season, right, is when you're three wins in regulation out of 15 games and your season's over. Mm. Your season's effectively over, right? Like, the Canucks don't have a ton of time to write the ship, but losing two games doesn't doom you to anything. Doesn't doesn't mean much. Like, Dom LeCision updates those projections, right? The Canucks have lost about 10% from their playoff odds. So they went from 43% to 33%. So from just under a half, or, or like, you know, a 40%, well, whatever. The percentages are right there. It's not significant, right? It's it's material, but it's not massive. It's not a change in fortunes or, or what have you. That's, that's what we've experienced here. It's two games. It's two games. There's a ton of time for this team to write their story one way or the other over the course of this week. 
we got to give the sample some time to pool. And then my negativity will come there out if it's worth it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> 650, 650 is the Dunbar text line. Next on the show, we will be joined by a former member of the Canucks front office, our pal Jonathan Wall. Talk a little cap. What else he's seeing with the Canucks as well with Jay Wall. That's up next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Strantz here with you. We're going to be joined momentarily by Jonathan Wall, former member of the Canucks front office. Looking forward to our conversation with Jay Wall. I, I liked this text or answer if it came in uh, to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Shetton Burnaby says, five years from now when Connor Bedard is raking, we're 26 in the standings and you guys are calculating JT Miller's cap hit buyout, uh, I'm going to be pretty frustrated. And I mean, my initial reaction is uh, if, I'm, too. if I'm on the air in five years, I'm going to be pre- pretty thrilled. <laughs> So that sounds good, but the rest of it's a good positive spin. The rest of it sounds pretty frustrating. I think in reality, it'll be my my younger and cheaper replacement that is uh, telling you about JT uh, can, Miller's buyout. Connects, anyways, Canucks would never win the Bedard lottery anyway. There you go. So why even try? That's the negative positive. The key spin. is the key is never try. Yes, hey man, <laughs> it's worked out for me so far. As, as Homer Simpson said, right? Can't argue with can't argue with the great Homer. Simpson. You absolutely can not. Uh, six fifty, six fifty again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're going to get Jaywall on the line here as we speak, and uh, in fact, he is on the line. So we are now very pleased to be joined by Jonathan Wall, former member, longtime member of the Canucks front office. Jonathan, thanks very much for chatting with us. As always, we really appreciate it. How are you? My pleasure, guys. Doing uh, doing great. Another beautiful late summer day in the Okanagan here. Yes, late summer or mid-fall or whatever it is. But it's, it's been... <laughs> I'm going with late summer. Yeah, sure. That sounds about right to me. Uh, yeah. So I, we, we've, we've had a couple of games to look at the Canucks now, but I do have to rewind back to uh, the beginning of the season because obviously you were instrumental in managing the day-to-day cap situation for the Canucks in your time uh, with the front office. And, you know, they achieved a, a very interesting feat this year <laughs> of hitting the upper limit of the the salary cap perfectly and maximizing the return they would get, the relief they would get from Michael Furlan's uh, uh, putting Michael Furlan's deal on LTIR. What was your reaction to that feat of cap management? Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm happy for the group and, and that they're able to get that done. It um, you know it it really takes a lot of stuff to follow your way to get that number exactly the way it is, but it's a great result for them and and I think it's uh, it, it could set them up down the road to have a lot of flexibility and I think. I'm not sure if it was mentioned, but when I was thinking about it, you know, the ability to get that capture really is a, partly a result of, of the ownership finding a way to move their minor league team to Abbotsford. By having those players close and the ability to make those last-minute shuffles in advance of their first game really gave them that flexibility to get that exact capture. So that, that's part of the difference of having the team so close. Jonathan, you've managed a lot of injury bug ridden defensive groups over the course of your career uh looked at it just the other day only once in the last decade has vancouver used fewer than 10 defensemen in an nhl season uh looks like that's happened again what is it what is it is it the water out here what is it about the west coast what are some of the challenges that a rash of blue line injuries impose on a hockey club and on a hockey operations group well, I mean, I think, you know, depending on the types of injuries, a lot of them are just, you know, unpredictable if they're, you know, hits or block shots or, you know, stuff like that. You can't predict that. 
Um, I always felt our, our group did a good job trying to do a lot of preventative work with our players and trying to keep them as healthy as they could for as long as they could. But, you know, especially on defense, once you start having guys drop, it seems to sort of snowball. You end up with, with players playing more minutes. So there was, a, there, there was a sequence, I think it was last two years ago maybe, where it felt like we lost a defenseman almost every game. And at, in early in games, and as such, we would end up, you know, adjusting our minutes. And so players were playing more, especially early, which can also lead to some injuries. So it does kind of snowball, especially on defense, and you need to make sure you've got enough of them. So I know with the shuffling the, the Canucks did this week, um, you know, they're, they're a little more exposed on forward now, but they're more protected uh, defensively uh, in case they need some, some different options. <clears throat> How much of a priority was it in the offseason, in the summer, to really make sure, you know, you have 10, 11 guys that obviously they're not always going to be ideal options, but at least that you feel a little bit confident in calling up because, uh, you know, as Drancer said, it does seem to be such a regular thing. Was that something that you were always conscious with, working with the front office over the summer? Absolutely. I mean, you you know, we, we sort of went, you know, you kind of look at a 23-man roster, but you sort of try to build out, you know, 30 or 32 players and try to find the, that that next group of players that can, you know, that can, that can fill in when needed. And I think, you know, the example this week of, of calling up, you know, Noah Juleson was a great example of, you know, when we made the, well, or the group that was there made the trade um, at the beginning of last season to get him as a player in the trade, a player you knew that could play NHL games. It was just a great uh, depth acquisition at the time. And then to resign him and keep him in the mix was a strong move by the current team. Jonathan, what, what sort of issues do you have to, I mean, it looks like, the Canucks sort of reassigned Dries, called up Juleson, right? So for the most part, they're just deal, dealing within that everyone is on LTI. No one additionally has been put on LTI, clearly, because otherwise they'd go to a 23rd man. Um, how delicate can that be as you're balancing sort of a growing number of injuries and growing uncertainty, it feels like, on, on every front? How, how complicated is that to manage? Well, I think we, we joked about it, you know, last time. And I say joke, you know, in, in the best possible way about how, you know, these are humans and you never wish, you know, injury or, or ill will to anybody. But this is another, another example where sometimes, you know, like the, the longer term that you know an injury is, it does make flexibility easier. So if you have a player who goes down, I think um, Toronto had that on the weekend with, with Matt Murray, I believe, where he went down and immediately, you know, it's a four-week injury, he's going on LTI. So it gives you a really quick ability to, to react and, and fix your roster. Mm-hmm. If it's a, a seven-day injury, you can put a guy on, on IR and get the roster relief. Not necessarily cap relief, but get roster relief. But if you have these day-to-day injuries, you really want to be careful that you don't react too quickly and take a player out of your lineup when maybe it is only a day or two or a game or two, and you might be able to use them in the back end of that seven days. So you do want to sort of, you know, not overreact too quickly and make sure you keep as many players as you can available. Jonathan, what, what does an injury situation like this? I mean, we see, we've seen Kyle Burrows now. It's He's going to get a look in the top four. It would take a situation like this for a player like Burrows, considering his 400-plus games of AHL experience, right? Uh, wasn't drafted, or if he was, he was drafted late by the Islanders. Um, it would take a situation like this for him to get a shot, but... Can you remember times in your career where a guy has taken an opportunity like this and, and sort of run with it, proven themselves as perhaps being more than anyone expected they could be? I, I think I don't, I don't remember anyone specifically, but I do think there, you know, there there are times over you know over my career where, again, players whether it's at the end of a season 
or, um, you know, again, the injury call up or just a brief opportunity where you absolutely want to take that chance and, you know, and, and really, you know, really take advantage of it. It's, it's so hard to make the NHL. You look at how few opportunities there are, you look at how little roster turnover there is. And, and again, any chance you get an opportunity, you want to make sure you do, you do the best of it. And I think it also takes a special player to be able to come in and just sort of run with it. You know, it, it's hard when you're sort of that extra player or you're up for, you might be up for a day or two or a week or two and, and you might be squeezing the stick a little bit or a little bit anxious on the ice, but it really takes a special player to really take that opportunity to run with it and really play their game, you know, play the game that they're known for. In conversation with Jonathan Wall, former Canucks front office member here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, I think the one of the other things with the Canucks situation right now, Jonathan, is over the course of an 82-game grind, we all expect there to be injuries, especially for a team that travels as much as the Canucks. But does it does it feel a little different when it happens right to start the year, right? Especially, I mean, this was a team that was healthy at the beginning of training camp, and then they've picked up all of these injuries uh, since then. And I can imagine if, you know, if I was a member of the hockey ops department, there'd be kind of an extra level of frustration sitting there thinking, you know, we put this team together that we like, and we're not even getting a chance to see them on, on night one or night two of the season here. Well, I mean, if, if you look back, unfortunately, you know, for, for the Canucks, I think for most teams, it, it is rare to actually put your full and best team on, on the ice. And the teams that are able to do it the most, and especially as you get to the playoffs, are the teams that are going to have the best, you know, the best success to do that. But obviously, it's frustrating, and you, you do want to get off to a good start. And um, you know, but the compounding issue of the Canucks schedule right now is obviously with with the Abbotsford team out west and the Canucks team out east. It actually does create some challenges. I know they're doing three and four right now. So you know, obviously having eight D in I think in Washington with the team right now just gives them that little bit extra cushion in case on the back-to-back they do need an extra defenseman here. John, the situation that this team is dealing with, and again, it's something about Vancouver, it seems, right? It's an every-year thing. What changes do you remember over the course of your Canucks tenure um, occurred in terms of building out that depth? How much, how much do you really need? I mean, you mentioned 32 players, but... Um, how much thought goes into staffing, finding, identifying, scouting that, you know, defenseman 9, 10, 11, uh, year to year in this market? Well, it does. I mean, that's a huge job of our, you know, when I was there, I say our, but the, the pro scouting department. And I know the last couple of years that, that I was there, RJ did a great job on, on really managing that and really trying to find a group that can, that can work in the American League for, the, for that team but also players that come up, can come up and play, play depth games for the Canucks is just so important. I mean, having those extra NHL-ready bodies is just a huge benefit. And again, it takes a commitment from ownership to be willing to put those one-way contracts in the minors where you're spending, you know, seven fifty or eight hundred grand on a player who is going to be playing in Abbotsford, but you know that that is actually almost more of your NHL depth cost than an Abbotsford cost. Jonathan, just before we let you go, you know, I know it's only two games, but the team's still looking for his first win of the season. And we're hearing it from our listeners and the fans. They're frustrated. Does it does the frustration and the anxiety start to set in even for people on the inside of the team at this point? Or or are they at least able to take maybe a longer term view than uh, than some of us are? What does it feel like when when a team gets off uh, to not such a great start for the season here? Well, I think, I mean, everyone, you know, this is a results-based business and everyone wants to win. I think you saw, you know, with JT Miller's comments the other day, you don't need people outside the organization, you know, telling you when things aren't going your way, whether it's, you know, with any part of the game. So I think, you know, when, you know, if a power play is struggling, 
the guys on the power play and the coaches working the power play are the ones that are putting the extra work in are the most frustrated with it. Um, same with the PK or, you know, face-offs, whatever it is. So I don't think, you know, I think they have a, a sense of professional pride and they want to win. And so they're going to do everything they can to get that, get that going. In terms of the outside noise, we, we sort of always tried to block that out a little bit and just, you know, keep, keep about our business and know that two games aren't going to change your season, but you definitely want to get it turned around as quick as you can. Jonathan, always really appreciate your insight. Uh, enjoy the rest of your late summer day in the Okanagan now, right now. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jay Wall. That is Jonathan Wall, former longtime member of the Canucks front office, obviously handled a lot of the, the analytics and the uh, cap management on a day-to-day basis for them as well. Always fun to get his insight into the situation. Um, the stat you mentioned in that interview, and I think you mentioned in your piece up at The Athletic right now as well, your answer about only once in the last decade have the Canucks used fewer than 10 NHL defensemen. That is a eye-popping number and little tidbit of information there and it got me thinking you know I actually think we were on the air for like free agent frenzy this year going back to the summer right and every every day or every year of that you know there's always AHL signings and our immediate reaction is oh they just signed uh, Christian Willan and yeah, that's an AHL signing. We move on. We start talking about something else. Or worse, or right. worse. You get the you get the responses in the uh in the Dunbar Lumber yeah. text line or oh, on oh, Twitter. That's gonna fix it. Yeah. Plan yeah. the parade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But really, it's like, oh, they just signed this AHL defense, and well, he's going to play games for them next year. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like that's the reality of the Canucks. When they sign those types of players, they have a very, very pressing, real need for them. And, I mean, we're seeing it already again this year. It's You're not just going to – you can't just look at your six or even your seven or eight guys. you got to look at nine, ten, and eleven as well when you're kind of either putting the team together from the front office perspective or forecasting how they're going to perform. That's just the reality that they find themselves in yeah and I mean it's an interesting one of the interesting dynamics is that you you remember the Canucks when they first moved to Abbotsford signed a ton of veteran depth players like Kyle Burroughs was signed with Abbotsford in mind originally Mm -hmm. right it's just that injuries piled up and he he made a good showing of himself at training camp Uh, the Hamannick situation unforeseen occurred and all of a sudden he gets a shot now he's going to play in the top four, and I've got NHL people saying, hey, that might be an upgrade for them, right? Like, it's it's amazing how quickly things can turn and how outside of a player's control it can be when it does. One thing that's sort of emerged is, you'll remember the Canucks signed five right-handed defensemen. Five. They signed mm-hmm. five right-handed defensemen that day. Uh, Brady Keeper, who obviously sustained a significant injury and wasn't the first call-up. Right, Noah mm-hmm. Juleson sort of got the nod ahead of him. Juleson played NHL games for the Canucks last year. Maybe the team wants a keeper to get some, you know, meaningful AHL games before he becomes an option. Although I thought he was um, far more impressive at training camp, to be totally honest with you, than than Juleson. Um, Pullman and Hamonic deals have not necessarily worked out. I think it's fair to say yes. And but Shen and Burroughs have been phenomenal finds for this organization. Right. Um, it's an interesting sort of thing to remember, too, in that sometimes you can find guys just as good sort of on that free agent scrap heap. Sometimes your depth guys can outperform your fringe NHL guys over the long haul, particularly if you do a good enough job identifying them. Um, the Canucks did a better job identifying 7 through 10 in that particular offseason than they did identifying 5 through 6. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, but I'm really interested to see the opportunity Burroughs gets today. Let, let's talk a little bit about this quickly because 
you know, the pairings are a little scary. Yeah, so going into today, and I don't know if they did the a full skate this morning. Optional, optional skate. So at yesterday, the pairings of practice were Hughes and Shen, mm-hmm. OEL Burrows, Rathbone and Stillman. However, based on Boudreaux's commentary today, we're sort of anticipating Stillman, Stillman, Juleson on the yeah. third pairing. Yeah, um, tough, tough. So especially against a pretty deep Caps team. Was I the only one that thought with Pullman out that we might see the Hughes OEL? experiment rekindled and go Rathbone, Shen, Burroughs, Stillman, who'd had success together. I I just think if we're not being too polite about it, like if we're going to be completely real about it, Quinn Hughes on the right side wasn't a look that anyone should have any confidence in, in a meaningful game, in my view. He'd figure it out because he's Quinn Hughes. But first of all, he's not been at his best in the first two games. Uh, Not that he's like the reason they're struggling or anything. I'm just saying... I think he's one of the reasons. We're he hasn't u- been up to his standard. We're used to such a high level of play from him, and I, I don't think we've heard from him the way we're used to to this point in the season. Uh, and secondly, it just looked – it didn't look right. It just, it just didn't look right, Jamie. Uh, maybe we'll see it here and there for an offensive zone draw or situationally, but Quinn Hughes is just so much more dynamic on the left side, looked so much more comfortable there. I just don't think it's a real option. I just don't think it's a real option, to be totally honest with you, and and this would back it up. Yes. I mean, if there was a time to break glass in case of emergency and go to it, this is now, like, the time is now, but, you know, I saw nothing at training camp that, like, looked like a light bulb clicking on and, it, and me thinking, it, hey, this is worth trying. The only reason it surprised me a little bit is that it was late in preseason where Bruce Boudreaux kind of dropped the nugget of, you know, that will depend on Tucker Pullman's availability, right? That mm-hmm. Right? And so that that wasn't that long ago. But it didn't. That's what – It that's... never did. It never did. I think Boudreaux was finding a tactful way, <laughs> you know what I mean, to, a, to abort the experiment yeah. because it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. Like, it, there was one scrimmage where I thought, okay, I can see it. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me. Um, otherwise, I never at any point thought that Quinn Hughes looked nearly as dynamic on the right side as he did on the left. This defensive group, like, Stillman's played really nice. Like, he's been a really nice find through two games for the Canucks. But Stillman-Juleson, you know, that's tough, right? Juleson played five really good games for the Canucks, and then he played a sixth game, and it was not really good at all, right? Which is sort of your classic um, American League guy who can give you games mm-hmm. sort of sort of trajectory, right? Adrenaline pumping, you get a few good games out of them, and then you sort of, the level falls off, right? Stillman with Juleson could be an issue, particularly against a Caps team that, you know, rolls three lines deep and actually rolls four lines deep. Often six, that Nick Dowd, remember him? Uh, Oh, yeah. Garnet Hathaway, fourth line on tough competition to create easier sledding. Like, this third pair is going to be playing good players tonight, right? Like, they're going to be playing Connor Brown. They're going to be playing Dylan Strom. They're going to be playing um, Kuznetsov. I almost said Kuzmenko. Kuznetsov. The Battle of the Kuzes. Is Ben there? Kuznetsov, <laughs> Kuznetsov is a game-time decision. So we okay. might, unfortunately, we might not okay, see so it. So maybe yeah. not Kuzmenko yeah. Yeah. or Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov. My goodness. Uh, good luck, Shorty. Um, in, terms of, in terms of that, that's a big test for this team. And then you've got Kyle Burrows in the top four. You've got Luke Shen on the top pair. And to this point, right, like it's hard to – really capture just how problematic that Shen Hughes pair has been for Vancouver's five on five game to this point. So that's and one now of, they're going to be counted on more. That was one of the things that was kind of on my 
list of observations from that Philly game. And I, I feel like I'm committing Canucks fan sacrilege here, but Luke Shen, bless everything he's done for the team. He has been an absolute warrior. He outperformed his contract, been huge, all of that. We Let's not let that distract us from the reality that he's also a Band-Aid solution in that spot, right? Like the pairing has worked really, really well. But it's still not an ideal solution. Yeah, it's not. And a bandaid being worn by the Black Knight too, right? <laughs> like let's let's you know, I, I, no, no, like like hey, great, hey, they have the chemistry as Brudrow says. For whatever reason, it worked. You're still pairing Quinn Hughes with a guy that you initially acquired, thinking he was going to be your seventh rave defenseman. And for whatever reason, in the first two games, I have noticed those limitations and how it's affecting Quinn Hughes a lot more than I have previously yeah. with Luke Shen. To to quote John Tortorella, right? Luke Shen is your six seven guy. Good for you. Luke Shen is your top pair guy. Good for him. Yeah. Right. I, I, that, it just is what it is. So, you know, this defensive group is going to be stressed out. It, it was already a weakness of the team, and arguably they're now down all three of their first choice right side guys. Right. Like I think if everyone's healthy, the Canucks' preference would be to line up something like, you know, Pullman with Hughes, Myers with OEL, Dermott, Dermott. with Stillman, and all three of those guys are gone now. And the team's lost two in a row. They've frittered away a couple of leads. And so you go into this week, three and four, uh, and really it's it's uh, two, three, four of six against two tough opponents and also Columbus. I mean, it's a really tough spot for this group to be in as they try to find their game, as they tweak the lineup, as Bruce Boudreaux sort of gropes about for something that can work to stem the tide here. Uh, we'll get into the forward lines too and the power play because I've got some – pretty serious concerns yeah. about about how they're trying to get things back on track um you know for for as little as i've been concerned about vancouver's first two games and I, genuinely i'm not i'm not pushing any sort of panic button in fact i'd be talking anyone trying to push it out of uh talking anyone trying to push it out of doing so but some of the decisions that have been made I, i'm i'm pretty concerned about uh particularly when it comes to the changes on Pedersen's line which for me is to sort of, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face. Remove the one thing that's worked from Vancouver's arsenal. Um, I just don't get it. We will talk more about the new look forward pairing, uh, forward lines on the other side. Just before, while we're still talking about the defense, we should mention the fact that uh, Jack Rathbone is not, doesn't look like he'll be drawing in tonight. Noah Juleson instead. Now, Boudreaux kind of made the point. He didn't announced that but he he said it was going to be a game time decision but he also said Washington big heavy team Juleson brings more of that element maybe Columbus tomorrow a bit of a faster team so we could see Rathbone it still concerns me a little bit for what how they view Rathbone internally right now that he was on the trip there's an injury to defenseman and it doesn't look like he's going to get in to the first game is that a fair concern for me to have with what we're going to see the rest of the year from Jack Rathbone the fact that no, Juleson is playing ahead yeah. of Jack Rathbone after Jack Rathbone couldn't make this defense score out of training camp at the did, age of 24. Did yeah. I miss something on ice where he blew it? He had a lot of giveaways. He had some turnovers. Yeah, he had a lot of I, giveaways. I always thought it was outweighed by the good. I guess I was wrong about that. At least uh, the Canucks disagreed with you, me. You don't play that much in the preseason if you aren't trying to make a case. And and here's what I'd add about Rathbone, right? Is I We talked about this a little bit. It felt like he was trying so hard to address the defensive reliability of his game 
that he didn't have the moments that are going to cause him to stick in the league, which are, you know, gambling for the big open ice hit because he is a tougher guy than his listed size, right? Uh, marauding up ice and using that shot and those wheels and that creativity to make things happen. It felt like he was almost playing too conservatively and so focused on making the case that he could hold up defensively that he failed to make the case that he can help this team with all the other stuff that he can bring if he's firing, you know, and, and yeah. given an opportunity. That that would be my read on it. Um, also, though, at some point, Rathbone's a 24-year-old who couldn't crack this defense core. And, you know, that does change how we have to view and talk about him in terms of the, the idea of him being, uh, you know, that shiny prospect um, for this organization. You know, at some point, you become just a guy. And Rathbone's certainly nearing that tipping point. Well, yeah. I mean, you're a guy fighting with no Juleson to get into the lineup. That's the problematic space to be for somebody that you were hoping. And yeah, sure, maybe the operative word there is hope. But I think the best case scenario for this defense, for a lot of us, certainly in my mind's eye, involved Jack Rathbone having a significant impact because of the skill set that he brought to the table. If, you know if how you take I feel that, about hope, Jamie. If, yes, I know. If you take that possibility completely off, because he's not even in the lineup, I think the ceiling is significantly lowered uh, for this blue line, which I, I also think we have already seen through two games. Anyways, <laughs> uh, we will see if Jack that, Rathbone... That was an adventure. We, you're, you're, yeah, yeah. you're talking yourself into the inevitable conclusion, which is that this blue line remains problematic. Yes. Um, we'll see if Jack Rathbone gets in tomorrow against Columbus. But of course, first, they will play Washington today at 4 I was just enjoying your um your your circular path yes. toward like, man, this defensive group. Oh boy. Two games in, Jamie. It's not like I've ever denied that. <laughs> no, I know you haven't. I know you haven't. You're not you're not among those who have, but it's just like the reality keeps staring us in the face yeah. and we keep having the conversation in this market. Is it good enough? And oftentimes people are like, Yeah, you know, they can be more than the sum of their parts. And it's like, we're two games into the season. They got Juleson on the third. I, I know yep. that they've lost three right side defenders. Like, I'm not trying to be uh, too harsh about it. But it's just like, you know, I, I wish I wish this had been tougher to foresee. You know, that's, that's it. That's all I wish. Uh, we will talk more about the matchup with Capitals uh, and the new forward lines that the Canucks rolled out at practice yesterday as well. Keep your text coming in, 650-650. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks on another game day for the team. They face off against the Capitals in Washington. Puck drop at 4 o'clock Pacific time with Batch and Randeep. Uh, Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah coming up with Canucks Central after our show, and they'll have your pregame coverage as well. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, Douglas Lake Equipment. Dot com 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, I wanted to read this one. I asked people earlier in the show what the most frustrating part of the season has been so far for them. This one from Austin and Langley says, most frustrating part so far is that they've doubled down on the roster again, hoping that if they stay healthy or if things go better, that they will be a playoff team. If they miss again, they've tied up the team even farther. And then he says in parentheses, oh, God, I'm starting to sound like Drancer. That's from Austin and Langley. You know, you know fans are concerned when they're texting in. Sounding I'm, like you, Drancer. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, Austin, you're right. <laughs> anyway, look, there's a lot to be frustrated about, but also it's really important to remember it's two we're games. just two games in. Yeah. Um, you know, the last 
time, the Canucks played a thoroughly enjoyable season. They lost the first two games in Alberta, right? And then came back and absolutely stomped the LA Kings. I don't know if you remember that game. Brandon Sutter had three assists, so how can you forget it? Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and that was, that was uh, remember the besser Furland Pedersen line? Mm-hmm. I mean, they put together the lotto line. Everything changed. The, you, you make some tweaks, a couple things, find a couple things that work, and it changes what your season might look like. Uh, the Canucks effectively lost the first two games in 2019-20 and out of it built a line that outperformed just about everyone except the perfection line. In the NHL, the balance of the season with JT Miller, Elias Pettersson, and Brock Besser on the right wing. They've made some changes again, and, and on Sunday we saw I, – I think there's a lot to read into yeah. with these changes. In particular, Here, one thing I'll run through them. How the the new the how, okay. how they look. Is that does that uh, work for you? No, you want to yeah. get into it? You want to get into it? I want to I want to I want to sort of do it piecemeal. Well, I, I just want to start by right, captioning right. a couple all things. Right. Let me let me give some context and then we'll get into it. We've talked a lot about how Pearson Besser mm-hmm. playing together are a proxy for who Vancouver's top line is from a matchups perspective. And we've seen that play out although the Niels Oman handles Tufts logic has sort of interfered a little bit with what we might have expected preseason. Fact is, is that of Vancouver centermen, Miller has spent by far the most time dueling the likes of McDavid and Kevin Hayes through two games. Um, at, two at, very similar players. Well, but <laughs> I know, I know, I know. They, I'm just they it up similarly the <laughs> top first line centermen on two teams. Centers. But yes, uh, a little bit different. Just taking an opportunity for snark. But I know what you're. I know the point you're making. <laughs> The world beaters. Like <laughs> anyway, um, so the yeah. two best players in the league. <laughs> Kevin Hayes is super he's, good, he's by good. the way, he's good. and he's and good. if he's healthy this year, he's gonna have a good year. With so anyway, we've seen that play out through two games, and we've also seen what play out. JT Miller's been on the ice for every goal against. Um, the fact that the Canucks have changed where Miller and Besser, sorry, where Pearson and Besser play, and yet have kept them together is pretty loaded for me because it suggests a, a big sea change in terms of who's going to be counted on to handle Tufts, at least to the extent that Bruce Boudreaux can control it as the coach on the road. Let's now run through the lines. All right, so with that in mind, on the top line now, or at least as they skating as the top line, taking rushes in that way, it is Miller skating between Vasily Podkolzin and Connor Garland. Bo Horvat with Pan- Tanner Pearson and Brock Besser. Elias Pettersson with Andre Kuzmenko. And then Curtis Lazar and Ilya Mikheyev rotating in the third spot on that line. And then Niels Amon, Dakota Joshua, and Niels Hoaglander on the fourth line. So essentially, Miller and Horvat swap spots, swap wingers. And then you also have some tweaks moving Hoaglander down to the fourth line and Lazar slash Mikheyev uh, up to the Pettersson-Kuzmenko line. So a couple things. I, I th- First of all, the major thing that this suggests to me is that Bruce Boudreaux may want JT Miller to play far less often in Tufts than mm-hmm. he has in the first two games. Why? Because he's taken Besser and Pearson and put them with Bo Horvat, right? Now, part of this might be a transition thing because the Pearson-Besser-Miller line struggled so much to connect play. Perhaps there's an idea that you put Bo Horvat, who's you know a, a stronger skater, a stronger puck carrier, typically, at least over 200 feet of ice than, than JT Miller is, that perhaps that line will, you know, have a driver, like a neutral zone driver on it. Uh, Pod Colson, meanwhile, can sort of, and Garland too, can kind of do that job on the Miller line. Uh, so perhaps that's part of it as well. But what I see is Boudreaux effectively t- putting Miller with a pair of wingers whom he typically has not trusted mm-hmm. 
in in matchups, giving Bo Horvat his sort of most reliable two-way guys and strengthening the defensive reliability of the Pedersen line, at least in Bruce Boudreaux's mind, because we know that Bruce Boudreaux's been skeptical traditionally yes. about Niels Hoaglander's defensive IQ, right, and and his overall hockey awareness. Now, if you play Pedersen with Lazar or Mikheyev, right, maybe that's the line that can handle tough matchups. Ramping up the difficulty of the Pedersen line's matchups makes a ton of sense because that line has been absolutely feasting on their opposition. Like, we're talking 70-plus percent uh, expected goal margin in the 15 minutes that that line has played through two games. Um, you know, there's like five or six lines in the NHL that have had a week like that in terms of exerting two-way control, and they tend to be centered by guys like Matthews and McKinnon. <laughs> and like, there's not a lot of lines that you don't think are good mm. uh, that have performed like that, even though it's a small sample, even though it's going to regress as the sample expands. I'm not sure why you'd break up Hoaglander, Kuzmenko, and Pedersen. It's worked so well. I think you can ratchet up the difficulty of the matchups that that line plays without necessarily putting a guy like Lazar or a guy like Mikheyev into that spot, personally. That's my view. I just think that line has done enough that they've carried this team 5-on-5. Five five. Like, when you're talking, when I'm talking about, oh, this Canucks team, they've looked way better at 5-on-5 five five than I expected, almost all of that, like, part yes. of it's Niels Amon's, but the lion's share of the credit is that every time Patterson's been on the ice, the Canucks have been in the offensive end. They're generating two shots for every one they surrender, two scoring chances for every one they surrender. They haven't been on the ice for a goal against yet. Um, you know, that that line has been carrying Vancouver five on five. I'm not sure why you go away from it. In fact, it concerns me that they have. Like, why take the one thing in your game that's working? The one thing in your game that's really working, other than, you know, Burroughs has been good and Stillman's been good. And hey, that Neil's a I like that fourth sure. line. Yeah. That's small potato stuff. That's not stuff that matters. What matters for this team? Pedersen's line has been absolutely cooking. And yet they've broken it up. I, I don't quite understand that. But in every respect, the changes that Vancouver's make suggest strongly to me, right, that we're going to see a, a pretty significant change in, in JT Miller's deployment tonight from a difficulty and a matchups perspective. And and that's a sort of a, a loaded commentary, I think, uh, given Miller's contract status, given what this team did last year to win games, how Miller was deployed, uh, you know, his status is a sort of 1A centerman for this team is his 20 plus minutes a night burden that he's been carrying those changes feel very loaded and very much targeted in terms of trying to reduce that defensive responsibility that Miller has carried uh, perhaps not as effectively as he did last season in the opening couple of games uh, and just a note on Mikheyev the the word from Bruce Boudreaux was probably not tonight not tonight I believe but should be against either Columbus or Minnesota and I know Darren Dreger reported uh, just a few minutes ago or about half an hour ago that assuming there are no unexpected setbacks the Canucks should have Ilya Mikheyev in their lineup tomorrow in Columbus so which his, is will be a huge help yeah his return is imminent and the thing about splitting up the Pedersen Kuzmeko Hoaglander line okay you get Mikheyev there. I understand. That's what you wanted to see. I understand that. Fair enough. But, first of all, you're doing it a day early if you're going to put Lazar there, right? Like, wait, at least if that's the logic, wait until Mikheyev is back in the lineup. Don't put the placeholder there. And the other thing is, you know, I I, I, I can understand not being married to it, but why not? Like, I, I could see going with Horvat, with Pearson, and Mikheyev, right? And then you move Besser down with Pedersen and Kuzmenko, and then you have a speedy, 
elite defensive winger like Mikheyev playing with Horvat and Pearson, you probably feel really, really good about that defensive line. And with Pedersen, Besser, and Kuzmenko, it's certainly not bad defensively. You know, maybe you have your doubts about Kuzmenko, but you like the other two, and you still have a little bit of pop. You know that Pedersen and Besser have worked together. So my inclination would be stick with Hoaglander, Kuzmenko, and Pedersen for now. Even if you are going to break it up, though, a little bit, I think there's maybe some other configurations that make a little bit more sense. 100%. And, uh, you know, again, if the concern with Hoaglander on the Pedersen line is his finishing game, I'm, I, I hate to break it to you, but you're not getting more finish from Ilya Mikheyev. Like, you're just not, um, in in all likelihood. You might, because it's hockey and, and weird things happen. But typically speaking, right, Hoaglander's been the superior finisher for his career to what to what Mikheyev has been. Um, it just is what it is. So, anyway, I, I'm... Really skeptical. If they if they separate Hoaglander from Pedersen and Kuzmenko, I, I feel like that's really playing with fire. I think that would qualify for me as an overreaction. I want to talk also about the power play because the Canucks have not hit the panic button on the power play and Kuzmenko remains ensconced, one of my favorite words, in the net front spot on power play one. This, by the way, is the absolute right decision, right? You cannot, in my view... Give Kuzmenko the first dibs opportunity at the net front on the power play, and then when things go poorly for two games, scapegoat him this early into his NHL career. That's not a fair spot to put a guy still learning the NHL game. That's not fair. You have to be really sharp about making sure that his confidence stays high and that you're behind sort of doing everything you can to get the most out of him, particularly because he's looked so impressive through his first two games. Well, where would you rank Kuzmenko in terms of the five skaters? Like, problems so far for the power play. Yeah. Um, Fifth. No, I wouldn't. Uh, there was a couple sequences. Uh, he, he had some bad plays on. Uh, there have been Philly. a few sequences where you can see where he's still figuring it out, right? Not um, a top three problem. Let's put it that way so far. Or no, underperformer. Uh, 100%. I mean, I mean, how many sh- how many shots does Bo Horvat have on the power play? Like, very few. Maybe one or two. Um I think one really good chance that Carter Hart stopped in the second period um, against Philadelphia. Uh, JT Miller obviously would would sort of JT Miller would sort of be at the top of the yep. list, right? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. JT Miller might be at the top of the list, but he's also far down the list of concerns about the power play. Uh, JT Miller is going to be good, gr- good to great, and more likely close to great in terms of quarterbacking this thing over the course of 82 games. It's just that he's had two rough games to start the year and we and, and we're prone to overreacting to what to our first impressions. Anyway, the fact is though is that the Canucks took a pretty big risk when they decided to put Kuzmenko and plant him um at the net front on their first power play unit, particularly once Brock Besser was healthy. Now, Besser missed a lot of training camp, almost the entirety of the practice sessions and preseasons as a result of uh, the training camp injury uh, and hand surgery that he sustained. Presumably there was a a worry about that continuity, and yet Besser at the net front gives you the same unit that you had last season, the same unit that was one of the NHL's best for the final quarter of the season and arguably the final half of the season. But really it was that final quarter where they looked like, oh boy, this is a group that could compete with Edmonton and Toronto as one of the best power play groups in the league. To go away from that, I think was a substantial risk and I think we're I think it's illustrated by the fact that now to change it up, you'd have to account for the other considerations of Kuzmenko's development, particularly again to his credit because he's looked so dynamic in his, you know, first blush of NHL action over the course of the past week. It's a really tough spot to be in. They're going with the same group. 
I remain convinced that this power play is going to be very good over the course of 82 games. I'm not worried about it, but I do think that there's something being left off the table with Besser sort of playing on PP2. And I think that starting the season trying a new guy out, a new guy who's never played in the league, you know, and, and a guy who's tough to remove without sort of taking into account all the other factors about the opportunities you're giving him, I think that was a substantial risk, and I think it hasn't paid off through the first week of the year. The other notable power play wrinkle, uh, Vasily Podkolzin getting some power play two reps in the net front position, uh, and that removed Niels Hoaglander well, from as, power as play Niels, two. Niels, as Niels Hoaglander, like the first gut check reaction, moment there's a crisis, Niels demote Hoaglander, Niels Hoaglander. Lose, n- demote Niels Hoaglander, which is consistent with some of what we saw in training camp, which is consistent with what we saw last year. Um, you know, which remains sort of an issue that this team needs to sort through. Like, is Niels Hoaglander going to be heavily used by this team? Like, this is a guy who's found chemistry, you know, a, a Horvat pearson hoaglander configuration. Like, that line was really good for this team in 2021. Um, Hoaglander's looked really good with Pedersen and Kuzmenko the moment they lose a game. He might have been their best performer in that game against Philadelphia at 5-on-5 five five. in terms of the work rate, in terms of the consistency. And yet he's always the first guy to get dropped. Like there's something there at some point, at some point you can smell when a guy just doesn't have a coach's trust. Hoaglander has been there for a while and nothing we've seen has done anything to disabuse us of that notion. Despite the fact that Hoaglander had such a good training camp and despite sort of the bouquets that Bruce Boudreaux threw him uh, early on during, mm-hmm. you know, up in Whistler during camp, um, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Like, actions speak louder than words here, and the actions always result, it seems, in Hoaglander dropping down in terms of opportunity uh, and role. This text comes in, 650-650. Uh, isn't the strength of competition directly impacting Patterson's success on 5-on-5? Five five? Of course, sheltering him against worse players would affect that line's ability to control play. Yeah, he hasn't been used in, the, in that matchup role. Now, having said that... Their performance has been so good that it can regress and come down a little bit against better competition and still be a major positive uh, for the team. And this text comes in from Anthony and Coquitlam, uh, hashtag let PD cook. And that kind of captures what I want. And I I was saying this before the season as well. Lean into him. Lean into him being your best player. Put him in a position to succeed. That's even what I was getting at with the Besser thing, right? Like, we've seen them have success together. Besser's offensively talented and defensively reliable. Patterson is probably going to be your best center this year. Put him in a position to succeed in that role. Push, put him in a position to succeed where you are confident playing him against the other team's uh, best players, and, and you have confidence that he's going to win those matchups. I'm not sure Kuzmenko and Lazar slash Mikheyev are the right wingers for that. We'll see. I mean, look, I really like what I've seen from Kuzmenko so far. We'll see what Mikheyev can bring there, but if you're – at a certain point, you're going to have to embrace Elias Pettersson as your best forward. Well, and, and, you know, in the context of JT Miller being widely criticized, including by himself, right? I mean, JT Miller's mm-hmm. had some colorful language to, to describe his own performance, or at least he did on Saturday following the club's loss to Philadelphia. When that assessment was thrown at Bruce Boudreaux, Bruce Boudreaux heartily agreed with it, right? So <laughs> um, JT Miller's taken some slings and arrows in this market at the moment. JT Miller remains a very good player, right? On the, on the list of actual concerns about this team's performance, for me, JT Miller ranks very low, at least in the short term. Over the long term, maybe maybe a little bit higher, but that's just because of his age. Miller's going to be fine. Miller's a really good player. 
right? Miller's one of this team's really good players. Even if he's at the level that he was, like closer to the level that he was in 2021 or in his last season in Tampa Bay, his floor is still very good top six forward, right? And his upside is obviously way higher than that, as we've seen. And yet, last season he performed like a star level 1C, and that was the first time that he'd ever performed at that level in that position in the entirety of his NHL career. If you were coming into the season expecting him to reprise that level of efficacy, you know, I, I, I don't think that's on him that he hasn't been able to hit it again. That might, might be on you. That might be on the expectations uh, that have been placed on him. One thing that this team's going to have to sort of monitor here is right now they're losing games at the top end of their lineup, mm -hmm. right? It is at the top end of their lineup that they are struggling to generate possession and scoring chances. Uh, they're not really bleeding goals in those minutes yet. I mean, for all the JT Miller's been on the ice for every goal against uh, talk, two goals for, two goals against yeah. at five on five. And like, I he hasn't even been outscored five on five. I would also say Horvat has come in for a lot of criticism, and I would say that as well has been much more about a lack of chance generation than... Uh, hemorrhaging goals and chances at the other end. Well, right? and, and I mean, that line hasn't been scored on at five on five. Like, Bo Horvat has a clean bill of goals yeah. against at five on five. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's fair to put up, point out that he's not generating enough either. But yeah, it's not as if it's, oh my gosh, another another odd man rush against with that line on the ice. I don't you even know? know if I'd do that, though. I thought he had the lion's share. Like, he had more chances than any other Canucks player against Edmonton. Maybe he was a little quieter against Philadelphia, but, I mean, I think Bo Horvat's getting his chances. Personally, I don't think that line has been nearly the concern that the top-of-the-lineup line has been. Um, this sort of just comes back to a, a thing that I think we're going to have to monitor as the season goes along, something I've talked about a few times, something I'm going to continue to talk about until, um, you know, either this, this we our strength-is-down-the-middle approach works, mm -hmm. Um, or it's abandoned. Go away from it. Which is that? Which is that? You know, at the end of the day, in addition to all the other issues this team has, it's not like they have two top line wingers, right? Like that's one of this team's issues, right? They have sort of Brock Besser. They have a rate stats all star who a lot of people see as a top line winger in Connor Garland, but whose usage has never reflected that at any point during his career. They have guys in Hoaglander and Pod Colson, twenty one year olds with potential, right? And they have a guy in Ilya Mikheyev who's spent his career as a middle six guy and has had his best moments on a third line. Yeah. Like you could throw Tanner Pearson in that category and, and then you have the wild card of Andre Kuzmenko. Right? Sure. Who's learning the league in, in either, in either event. I don't think there's a single contender in the league that would have them on a top line, either Pearson or Kuzmenko, uh, Besser maybe uh, for some teams. So, you know, who's Vancouver's best bet to be another top line caliber winger. It's JT Miller. Like, you know, newsflash here, right? And I can't escape the fact that five on five, it remains true that Vancouver has been outscored at five on five the last three years since JT Miller joined the team with Miller on the ice absent Pedersen and with Pedersen on the ice absent JT Miller. And with both of them on the ice, they've controlled, they've outscored opponents basically by a rate of seven to three, right? They've 70% of goal events. They've controlled them with both of those guys on the ice. At some point, if the top end of the lineup issue doesn't get fixed as a result of chemistry, as a result of Bruce Boudreaux finding some button to press, that's going to be an option that this club has to consider, even if it does mess with that strength down the middle logic. Um, you know, I, you need a, you need two top line wingers in addition to three good centermen, right? Uh, Lazar on your third line versus a, a guy who's not really a top-line offensive generator on, on in a top-line wing spot, you know, 
at the end of the day, winning that top of the lineup battle, or at least holding your own, is the more well, important you know, uh, piece of fruit to pick. Plus, if you already have Curtis Lazar playing on your third line, like that's the downside to moving somebody, one of the top three centers to the wing, right? Is then all of a sudden Curtis Lazar is your third line center. But if you're already doing that, you're already realizing the downside to a certain well, extent. And, and what's the downside to build, in my view anyway, what's the downside to building like a pretty high energy third line around like Pearson, Lazar, and Pod Colson, mm-hmm. or Pearson, Lazar, and Hoaglander. I'm a Pearson, Lazar, and Mikheyev. Like all of those sound pretty interesting to me in terms of battling Tufts, particularly now that we know that they trust Niels Amon in Tufts as well. I mean, you could have a pretty interesting bottom six group. I I don't think you I don't think you can afford to be afraid of it if Vancouver doesn't begin to at least hold serve at the top end of their lineup. And through two games, and again, early, early yet, likely to regress, but through two games, it's been worse than them just not holding serve, right? That That's sort of been the area where they've been most on their heels at even strength. Uh, Tanbeer actually texted in earlier, no, JT playing no, center on, equals too much puck and too many turnovers. Drance is right. Load uh, up the top six. I hate I hate to hear, well, now I have to reevaluate my take. <laughs> you got to go back to the drawing uh, board? I thought I was on to something. Uh, the other thing I was just going to say in the new line combinations is we talked about them moving Miller away from that kind of matchup role. But I also look at, you know, Pod Colson and Garland, I think have played pretty well, right? We've seen we've seen the extra playmaking from Pod Colson. I've really liked what we've seen from Garland on the forecheck. So he's just so intense. Uh, he's really good. At at no, it. no matter no matter what, no matter what I'm saying about like, oh, they got outworked by Philadelphia. I want I want to note prominently that I am never discussing that with Connor Garland. <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever outworked Connor Garland for a single shift in his life. Um, I love that. So the other like, way I to just look love at that, it, I admire it. The other way, to, the other lens to look at it is, well, maybe that's a way to get Miller going offensively, right? Just putting him with two guys who have shown a little bit of chemistry together and are actually producing and, and possessing the puck in the offensive zone and creating chances, which is something that Miller has not been able to do of yet this year. It makes it, it gives him a couple of stronger skaters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, three guys, three guys who can pass the puck really well. Now that pod Colson has emerged as a, a pretty intriguing playmaker, right? Far more dynamic in terms of his distribution than he was at any point during his first season through two games. This line gives you three of your best playmakers, right? I mean, Connor Garland is probably Vancouver's best primary playmaker. I'm not talking about, like, the the decision that leads to the great pass. I'm talking about, like, finding a guy in so- in a soft spot, threading the pass to him. Garland might be the single best Canuck at that. I think Miller's the best overall passer on the team. And then Pod Colson, at least to this point in the season, has probably been their most dynamic non-Kuzmenko playmaker. So lots of competition. Pedersen and Kuzmenko deserve a hat tip here too. But that line sort of uh, gives the team three of arguably their best playmakers in, in one group. Should be fun to watch. Like, that sounds fun to watch. But they need to make it happen. It needs to look a lot different than it has in Vancouver's first two games with Miller on the ice. The power play looks fun to watch on the on paper as well. Has not been so far, but we'll see no, if that been, changes. It's been fun for, um, for other teams. opposing fans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. We'll continue to look at the matchup uh, with the Washington Capitals, how the Canucks match up with them, what are some of the keys to the game tonight, plus uh, a look at the playnow.com odds on this game as well. That's on the other side. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.
back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Final segment of the show for the day ahead of an afternoon East Coast Canucks game in D.C. against the Capitals. Puck drop at 4 o'clock. Canucks Central Satin Reach is coming up. Uh, they'll have you from 2 until puck drop, including your official pregame coverage. You can text us 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. So I uh, wanted to look at the uh, the odds from playnow.com on this one tonight, what would you guess is the the money line situation for the for tonight, Drancer? So I'm guessing that the Washington Capitals are favored. They're at home. The Canucks are not playing well. They're 0-2 to begin the season. Uh, they were dogs against the Edmonton Oilers. I believe they were plus 155 dogs against the Edmonton Oilers. I... I, I Vegas can't believe in Washington as much as they believe in Edmonton, and yet Vancouver's now given them reason mm-hmm. to think that they're uh, even more inferior than Vegas might have thought uh, going into the season. So I'm going to guess that it's slightly like more favorable for the Canucks odds than it was in the home opener. I'm going to guess plus 140. Plus 115. Wow. Capitals only minus Pick 135 em. favorites at home. Yeah. I mean, I, it surprised me a little bit. It's a little low. It. It's a little low. That's lower than I would have thought. Uh, but, you know, the Caps haven't been great shakes no, to open the they're season. They're one and two. And that's a team that I think a lot of people have been kind of looking at going into the season saying, okay, is this the year where you see the bottom fall out a little bit, right? Yeah. Is this the year where it catches up to them? Now, I would have wondered that maybe. The Canucks' poor performance through two games, or their issues at least through two games, have been enough to kind of counterweight that and get the odds into the area uh, that you're talking about. But I wonder, maybe Vegas and the odds makers take a, a view similar to you, Drancer, right? Where they say, hey, they've done some good things five on five. The power play will come around. They have Thatcher Demko. Uh, so maybe this is a little bit of a vote of confidence in the Canucks or a little bit of a opposite of a vote of confidence against the Capitals, but it surprised me, is, I, is what I'll say. Vegas is lower on the Caps than you'd think. Like, Washington, to make the playoffs, Vegas uh, sort of average mm-hmm. looks to be minus 150. So they're only plus 120 to miss. I think they're far, like, I think they're far less likely to miss than that, right? So, um, you know, certainly the... Caps are not getting the type of respect that Eastern Conference teams like, um, you know, the Rangers and the Penguins are getting, right? M- minus or plus 120 to miss. Like, for, for context, the New York Islanders are plus 100 to miss. So, effectively, Vegas handicaps the Rangers as being roughly equivalent, or sorry, the Capitals, mm-hmm. as being roughly equivalent to teams like Dallas and... Um, and the Islanders, right? That's sort of the tier that they're in. Now, that's still a tier higher than where the Canucks are. The Canucks are basically a pure pick per Vegas fall in the wake of two games to make the playoffs. So, um, you know, slightly above that, but not too far from the sort of mushy middle fringe playoff picture that we've been using as the context to discuss this team's ambitions. Um, not, not... Maybe I was too high on it. Now that I, I, I really truly tried to keep it blind so that I'd give you my honest response. But having checked that, I'm not I'm not surprised that it's uh, such low value yeah. in terms of Vancouver's underdog odds. It's the kind of thing where 
it's surprising and then you can kind of work through it right and maybe maybe we do just have some of that the, you know the capitals glow right because they've been so good for so long there's just that easy assumption that it'll continue like oh yeah they'll be pretty good they might not be a contender but they'll be pretty good check and see if the line moves when kuznetsov too is ruled in or mm-hmm. out right mm-hmm. i That's mean another one yeah the 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 canucks may, uh, may be further underdogs in the event that kuzmenko is ruled in right the uncertainty around washington's best centerman might may, may be priced in um, you know, what What are the chances that a favorite whose number one center is Dylan Strom, yes. <laughs> right, defeat the Canucks? That's sort of pro- probably part of what Vegas is pricing in, in, in giving Vegas or giving the Canucks a lower underdog um, price than you'd sort yeah, of expect. Yeah, because without uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov in the lineup, he didn't skate in the morning. They had Dylan Strom as their number one center. Uh, and then Connor McMichael is their number two center, right. and then Lars Eller, Nick Dowd, right? So and, and, I mean, I like a lot of those players. Like I like yeah. McMichael a fair bit, but he's not. He, he's Kuznetsov. No, he's, <laughs> yes, he's not a no doubt about it high performing number two center, right? Yeah. And and certainly not. He's not uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov. Uh, just before we get into a little bit more about what to expect from the Capitals and how the Canucks match up, if you're looking for another bet to place on the game, the one that caught my eye from an anytime goal scorer perspective was Andre Kuzmenko, who is well down the list of Canucks forwards. I believe he's six, six longest odds, a plus 300 anytime goal scorer for Andre Kuzmenko. Still playing with Elias Pettersson. Now, I know maybe they've got Curtis Lazar joining them, so it takes a little bit of offensive pop off that line, but they've been very good together. Still playing with uh, the team's best forward in Pettersson, most dangerous, dynamic offensive forward to this point, and he's still the net front guy on the power play that is eventually going to look better. So Andre Kuzmenko, plus 300, pretty interesting for me if you're looking for a, an anytime goal scorer bet as well. Does that, does that check out the logic there yeah. uh, for you, Drancer? I, I don't I don't dislike that at all. Um, I kind of like the, the over-under set at six. Um, I always like I always like the pushovers in, in hockey. If I bet hockey, I'd always be looking for those pushovers mm. um, or those push-unders. Uh, the the Caps and the Canucks have played a few high scoring games in in recent years, but for the most part, you know, it feels like a lot of two one, a lot of four two. Um, you know, there was a there was a four three that went to overtime last season. Um, in the heyday, like the Ovechkin versus Sedin and Luongo heyday, um, these were barn burners. Usually around Halloween, I don't know if you remember, but the Caps would always roll through Vancouver just in and around Halloween, and they'd always play a super weird game against the Canucks <laughs> that ended 7-5. In recent years, it's really become a lower event game. Now, I think the under would have only played in half of the last four, uh, you know, and three of the last five, sort of dating back to just before the pandemic. But those games have always felt pretty tightly contested, right? Vancouver's puck-on-stick game against Washington's um, you know, cynical one three one physicality. And that's what I'd expect again tonight. I sort of expect a nervy affair. Obviously, both of these power plays can go off. There's a lot of talent on both sides, but I'd sort of expect a relatively tight checking one uh, tonight. And so I kind of like the under at six, a nice round number for you too. There you go. And as we, you know, as we think about not just the gambling perspective, but how tonight might actually play out, this is going back to last year now, but like the two big questions, I think when you're, Scouting the Canucks versus any team are 
how are there how much pressure are their forwards going to be able to put on the Canucks defense? Uh, and then conversely, you know, how how able is the other team's defense going to be able to deal with the Canucks forecheck, right? Like those feel like the two big questions. Does the team have enough speed up and down the lineup to really harass and stress the Canucks, especially with the group they're dressing tonight where you, you know, got Kyle Burrows in the top four, Stillman playing on the opposite side, all of that. And then the other thing is, are the Canucks going to be able to get their forecheck game going? Those are still pretty much every game, the two big questions. For- yeah. And I think the answer on both counts is yes. I think the big thing about Washington's forecheck isn't so much going to be their speed game. They have some burners, but what they really have is a high level of intelligence and a huge size advantage, right? Particularly with Myers and Pullman out of the lineup, right? Kyle Burrows Mm. bumps into the top four. Um, There's going to be a really significant size advantage for the Capitals up front and a lot of their players like, you know, Connor Brown's not a big guy, but Connor Brown is as smart a two-way hockey player as you'll find in this league. Um, th- there's, you know, I-, I sort of give the edge to the Capitals' forecheck against Vancouver's defense. And likewise, the Washington Capitals lost Justin Schultz, and I think that's a bigger loss than people understand because Schultz has really become a very mature two-way puck mover, right? Like really more of a hybrid shutdown guy later in his career than he was when he was sort of a pure high event offensive guy in Edmonton mm-hmm. or even the player we saw in, in Pittsburgh where we couldn't believe our eyes that he'd become such a mature uh, top four piece. He, I think that was a big loss for them. And yet, you know, Faravari, who you'll see a lot tonight, is really good, really sharp in terms of his wheels uh, and in terms of his puck moving ability. John Carlson has gotten off to a really good two-way start. I, I tend to fade John Carlson. Like, I, I've always thought that Dmitry Orlov is sort of the guy without the points that is slept on by people who watch the Capitals. He's really their most important defenseman. Carlson gets all the accolades because he plays on PP1, but Dmitry Orlov is sort of the guy who does the heavy lifting. Carlson's off to a really good five-on-five start. I, I think he's played really well uh, to begin this season. And then Nick Jensen is that type of defender who can really give this team fits, right? Like just fast enough to break the puck out, just solid enough defensively to stymie and frustrate Vancouver's forwards. Um, They've got a lot of those smart defenders with just enough speed to break the forecheck. I I suspect that the Capitals, if they're on their game, if they're sharp, are going to be able to avoid feeding Vancouver's forecheck tonight. That's not to say, like, Vancouver can still win with special teams, with goaltending, with their finishing game, right? There's other paths, but in terms of that neutral zone battle, in terms of who's going to have more, um, who's going to be more effective bringing the pressure, I I would think that uh, that the Caps have the personnel to pull that off tonight. It always concerns me a little bit going up against that sort of, not that they're exceptionally mobile necessarily, but having that kind of baseline of mobility and puck moving ability from the blue line that Washington has, it's, it, it just takes away what the team is trying to make their identity, right? And that's always concerning for me. This is a really tough game. Like, make no mistake, this is one of the toughest games for the Canucks on this Road trip, particularly because the Minnesota Wilds seem to have a lot of work to do to figure themselves yes. out defensively. Uh, this Caps team is exactly the sort of polished, experienced group 
that I feel like the Canucks have had a lot of trouble with. Now, they beat them last year. They beat them, was it an overtime game with the Petters, the big Pedersen game? Yes. After they'd gone sort of 0 for 3 to begin that gauntlet road trip that, that we all sort of That was kind of the eyed. start of Pedersen's resurgence, I believe. Yeah. And he, statistically. He, yeah. He, well, he yeah. moved to the wing and he yeah. had two really strong games against Tampa Bay and Carolina and then got rewarded with a two-goal game and the Canucks stole one in overtime. Um, but that aside, the Caps also came to Vancouver and won 2 one Right, like they also played a game where they just sharply managed the puck, limited their mistakes, um, and and sort of beat the Canucks. Just sort of waited for their opportunity to pounce, and then Boa constricted them, uh, you know, out of it in a in a low event contest. The Caps can do that, right? Like this team, I think, is built to be the sort of op- opponent that the Canucks have tended. The Boudreaux Canucks specifically mm-hmm. have sort of tended to be. Um, you know, exposed is too harsh, but, you know, have tended to really struggle to get past. And I guess the other factor to consider as well, and, you know, I never know how That said, I think the Canucks are going to win tonight. I think they're going to win go. out. I think they're going to win out. I had a vision over a flat white <laughs> on my way to the station last uh, la- uh, last Friday. Friday. Yeah, yes. and uh, I mean, I see, you know, when and if you can't trust that when when leg one of your four leg parlay pays off, you don't cash out. You stick with it. Like you I don't let know. it ride. I mean, how often have I ever come in and said I had a weird sense on my walk in? Never. I, I don't know why it happened. It happened on Friday, and so I'm going to stick with it. I think I think the Canucks are going to pull this out, even if I don't like that plus one fifteen value. The other factor is just the whole, you know, do they give an emotion? Emotional response. So they come roaring out of the gates, right? And there was the hard skate from Boudreaux at practice yesterday. And and how does that all play into it? <laughs> did, and, did, sorry, there was I missed that. There was a hard skate. Yeah. So another year, another opening yeah. season road trip, another inexplicable loss to a bottom, like a cellar dwelling team, yep. and another hard skate before yep. game three. Mm-hmm. Of the season. I, I, last year, I think it was in, before game four because I think and they did. Before back to back. Sorry, I think last year it was. They they did Edmonton right. They lost in Edmonton narrowly last year. They then beat they Philly. beat Philly. Then, then they, they lost to Buffalo and Detroit. Yeah, but yeah. They, they they played really well against Detroit. They got goalied against Detroit, and then they no showed against the Buffalo Sabers, and then they got skated really hard. So that happened again. We had that again. Oh yeah. Why do you think people are on edge? Man. We've all seen this movie before, Drancer. Oh, <laughs> serious Bonnie Vare vibes. This is brutal. Like- that's... I didn't realize they got skated. Oh yeah! So they got skated in the middle of a three and four, four which going is also into the a five, which uh, is four also and four six. and six. Oh, good luck. It's not great. Good luck. And this is especially brutal. with the with, as you were laying out there, Washington's ability to just kind of squeeze the life out of a game, right? Like the theory, partly you want what you want to see. Well, that they're they're going to be mad too. The adrenaline and the energy and the emotion, but Washington can do away with all that pretty easily. Well, I still think they find a way tonight, but. I wouldn't. I wouldn't lay a lick of money on it at plus one fifteen. I'm. Uh, I'm glad I could break the hard skate to you. New, hard skate news to you. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. I. You know. I, it was too early. Practice was too early. It was a weekend. <laughs> my my in laws have been visiting for yes, the last yes, week, yes. so they just left. So I had my first like nice sleep in. So uh, yeah, I guess I missed that. I didn't realize they two straight seasons starting on the road. One one because. The NHL was trying to dodge for as long as possible playing a home game mm-hmm, with fan mm-hmm. limitations as a result of BC's harsher than usual reaction uh, based on North American standard to uh, to um, COVID protocols. And then this year, because the renovations weren't done, another year where they've started poorly enough to be backskated at a practice within the first four or five games. Brutal. 
brutal. It's not what you want. I don't want to touch the panic button. I still think I've seen enough good things to be completely unconcerned, or at least, at least if you think you've learned anything definitive about this team through two games, I'm fading that analysis. But man, that is not a good sign. I don't love that at all. No. That I don't like. <laughs> it's 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 all happening all over again. <laughs> that is <laughs> that 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 fails my vibes test in a major <laughs> in way. A big, big major way. way. In a big big way. Man. Uh, final couple of minutes of the show here. Jeff Rose says uh, about bloody time they can beat these teams. I like that attitude, Drancer. They're going three and two on this road trip. Yeah. It's happening. Uh, and Dan in Fort St. John says, I called it. Just Dr- don't tell me. Just don't say I didn't tell you so. Uh, Drance has given me the confidence to bet the farm on no! each of the next three Canucks games. Oh, okay. Thanks, if you're, buddy. If you're, if you're parlaying it, though, you don't need to bet the farm. Just a little sprinkle. Uh, thanks, buddy. That is Dan in Fort St. John. Dan, uh, Dan, please, please. Your family needs that farm. <laughs> the, com- the community requires that farm for sustenance. Do not bet it. <laughs> no, no farmers, no food. Um, <laughs> uh, so- Anyways, yeah. all right, we're getting a little loopy here uh, at the end of the show, but are we? Uh, Canucks, we're talking about premonitions and bag skates, man. Canucks versus Capitals is coming up at what? four o'clock. How serious? How serious should we be? How I serious agree. should we be I leading agree. up to Game Three when this team's already been bag skated for a second consecutive year in the first week of the season? My goodness, this is what I'm telling you, man. This is what I was more concerned than you at the beginning of the show. Well, I, and I'm still not concerned. I just like I can't believe those vibes are that bad at this point, like this early in the year, like. I, I don't know. The schedule's too dense to be a, to have it be a serious bag skate. I'm sure it was just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some some punishments in the drills or whatever. But. Uh, that's going to do it for Canucks talk today. Yikes. Again, Canucks Central with Reach and Sat is coming up. They'll have your pregame show at three o'clock as well. Enjoy the game tonight. We will be back tomorrow to break it down. And on another game day, it has been Canucks talk Sportsnet 650.